Hello and welcome back to the Elite Football Show. My name is Hader and I'm your host as usual today. I've got a fantastic podcast today with the boys from Man Marking Pod. I've got Dan Reed, Ryan Pulford, two of the three because we haven't got the third member here. But boys, how are you doing today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Hader. Thanks for having us on, mates. I just noticed on your um, your intro thing, you've got Liverpool lifting the title at the end there, which must be painful for, painful for you. <laughs> Everyone says this. It's so painful. My brother's an Arsenal fan, so he he did it. And I said to him, why are you doing this? And he said, Liverpool won the league. And I, so every time I watch it, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit painful. I can't lie to you. <laughs> you did Ryan, get the uh, Watford goal in there, though, against them, didn't you? Yeah, yeah I did. So I it's it a bit of give and take, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and I've also got... Rob Lanchette, who's become a really, really good friend of the podcast. Absolutely great guy and also very experienced in this field as well. So, Rob, welcome back. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Hayda. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm excited because this is something a little bit different. It's something which I think doesn't get spoken about maybe enough. There is a bit more talk about it. I've actually had a lot of really, really lovely DMs yesterday when i posted out saying we were doing this a lot of people saying how close it is to their heart a lot of people saying how that this is a topic which should be spoken about more so i'm really really excited but let's just start with the podcast that you guys are doing i'll start with you dan and just tell the listeners a bit more about man marking pod and what the vision was or the purpose of it was when you set it up yeah no absolutely um so we started back in i think the first interview we did was in march first episode came out in april um it basically came out of uh, Ryan and, and, and I and, and the other lads who's involved have been friends for a long time. We're all massive football fans. And I had a, a little bit of a difficult breakup at the back end of last year, which which sort of put me into a bit of a dark place. And it's kind of some of the issues that I've been dealing with for a long time kind of came to a head. And when I kind of dealt with all that sort of stuff, one of the things I wanted to do was to try and use it to, to 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 have a positive to come out of it so i spoke to to ryan and to Ant, and i said look i've had this idea about doing a, a football podcast that be sort of linked in with mental health and we basically talked around the table a little bit had a few little chatter and i think we went to pub probably to to do it um and then came up with the the idea of us talking to people who are kind of within the game players managers coaches about their experiences of mental health to try and encourage other men who were listening to be more comfortable themselves talking about mental health. I mean, we, we had a look at some statistics and the same sort of demographic of people who go to Premier League football matches are the same demographic of people that are dying from suicide in this country. And I thought, well, that can't be a coincidence. So the people that need to hear this conversation, the people who need to hear that information are probably football fans. There's probably a high chance they're football fans. So they had to use football as that vehicle to sort of start that conversation. That's absolutely fascinating. I didn't really actually realise that the demographic was so similar. Mm. I mean, Ryan, what's the response been to you guys seeing out the podcast? Because we actually met each other through work. That's how this is all happening. Yeah. I started a job and Ryan was uh, at a partner company and we built up a really good relationship. I told him about my podcast, told him about yours, and we finally found, you know, sort of synergy. But um, has the response been so positive? And Because I've seen you guys have been doing really well really successful at the moment it's been probably the biggest surprise because it, it coincided us with starting the podcast that coronavirus happened and we we thought is it gonna sort of break us and it probably made us because at the time we ended up doing tons of interviews 
we were so surprised a by the response from people listening but b by the people willing to come on and share the story which i think for us was was the sort of the biggest part of it of getting it off the ground we thought are people going to want to speak to three lads from from the world who no one's heard of that we want them to open up about maybe stuff that's really close to the heart and to be honest with you they have done and i think that's why people have resonated with it so well because it does seem genuine uh, and it is genuine so yeah we've been taken back we've had a lot of people dm us a lot of people say thank you and even the viewing numbers i mean we're not joe rogan but we're, we're certainly impressed by that and at least one person's listening to us let alone the, the people that we do have listened to us so yeah made up so far with the response and long may I continue that's fantastic amazing work you guys are doing and rob i'm going to bring you in here because obviously you're in the industry Talk to me a little bit more about what you've seen sort of being on the inside, because there is a lot of talk that things are changing, but I think there's still maybe a little bit of a stigma attached to it. Yeah, there's still a huge amount uh, of stigma attached to mental health, especially when we talk about football and football fans and across the board. Uh, it's the kind of never-ending subject. We, we, we've started to kind of have discussions about it, and it's great that you guys have got your podcast and you're talking freely about these things. But as we see from whether it be from social media feedback or just talking to fans in general, there is still this kind of big question mark over what mental health is. You know, what does it constitute? How does it affect whether it be a footballer or a football fan? Uh, and it's interesting, obviously, that you mentioned the age demographic because this is obviously what we've found is that it, it really is a huge stress for guys of our age groups. You know, this is it's a it's a topic that needs talking about. And there's certainly been more discussion now in the last, say, two or three years about the subject, but it's something that we still need to keep chipping away at. We still need to keep talking about. Yeah, it's fantastic points. I mean, look, I can I'll be open about this. I've been out of a job since March. Obviously, a lot of guys and girls, well, everyone's struggling at the moment with the pandemic. It's completely crazy situation that none of us ever foresaw. But you know, it's been very difficult not having anything to get up to in the morning. Essentially, that's why I made this sort of like a full-time job. I packed my schedule so that I'm keeping myself busy. But then you know, there's other things that come with that. You could be enjoying what you're doing like I am, but at the end of the day, if no money's coming in and you're looking at your yeah. expenses and it's just totting up. I mean, I'm just a regular person. I'm not a football fan. And the question I want to fire to you, Dan, is me, somebody in not in a footballing industry, you know, obviously has had a few dark days here and there, but do you think that professional footballers are more susceptible or that the breeding ground is much more adverse for people with mental health? Um. It's a difficult one, really. I think it's kind of twofold. It's certainly an environment that's obviously very high pressured. There's a lot of things in there that could be potential trigger points for people, both kind of the pressure to succeed, the, the money that comes with it and the dangers that come on the back of that. I think there's a lot of young people that when they come into it, they have to miss an enormous amount of their kind of formative years that they'd be doing the things that we remember doing when we were sort of 15, 16, 17, 18 and enjoying and you'd have to kind of give those up and it creates a very pressurised environment and it and it's environment, as you say, that could make people incredibly susceptible to having adverse mental health and ill mental health and I do think that there is a certain level of it that comes down to not everyone is right for every environment and what we've kind of found from the interviews is that some people that go into that environment who aren't maybe the right personality for it or 
haven't been able to adapt to it the way other people have, have found themselves in a situation where they're tested and under a lot of pressure that you wouldn't get in other sectors of society. For people who have the right mentality or are able to go into it and, and, and adapt to it in the right way, they've certainly been able to maybe cope with it. But even even people who've had long careers and, and, and enjoyed it and, you know, wouldn't change anything about their, their sort of time in football. I mean, we had Guy Branston on, whose episode came out recently, who played for 20 years in the in the lower leagues in, in this country. And he had a, you know, he had a really great career. He achieved a number of promotions and played for, you know, a lot of clubs. And even he's somebody who said there were periods where he was low and he was lonely and he, he didn't feel as though he was getting support and he found it difficult. And you think that's somebody who would, would self-define himself as having a strong mentality and that environment has put a lot of pressure on him. Um, I, I don't know if it's more so than other environments, but it's certainly, a, you know, it's a top, you know, 0.5% environments, the pressure is going to be ramped up to the absolute extreme. So the likelihood for people to be put in positions that they wouldn't be put in in other areas of life is, is you know, much higher. Yes, fantastic points. Ryan, Dan talks about, you know, sort of at a very tender age, players are thrust into this, sorry, kids are thrust into this environment. You've spoken to a lot of players, obviously on your podcast, but do you not think that, Look, for me, from the outside, I'm looking in and thinking, look, there's a lot of risk, but there's also a very high reward. Isn't that something which some people think it's worth putting yourself in that position to possibly become a star? Yes and no. I think the reason there are so many kids in academies is because they are all doing that. They are all trying to be that next star. The likelihood of them making it is is very small. So when you think about the amount of people that actually go into academies is a small percentage. The, the amount that actually get pro contracts is a small percentage. And then the amount that get pro contracts and then have a decent career is quite a small percentage. So there isn't really many other industries quite like it, whereby you would put all your eggs in that in the basket for such a small chance of succeeding. But I think because we have this image of what being a footballer is, because we've developed in our minds that it's the greatest job in the world. And in to some people and in some regards it is, but for a lot of people it isn't. And I think it probably need to change that mentality. And I do think clubs are doing that. There is a lot more around education now. You'll see a lot more clubs with a college attached to them. You'll see a lot more clubs who make sure that the players go through some form of education. Um, and there's actually been quite a lot of awareness. We spoke to Jordan Broadbent recently. He was a coach at Sheffield United. And he said, we, we decided we made a change. And I think it was actually, um, he learned this from Nick Cox, who I believe is at Man United, that um, they needed to develop the people, not the footballer, which I think is very important because they need to give them the greatest chance of succeeding as a person. Hopefully as a footballer, but if they're not a footballer, that they can come away from Manchester United or they could come away from Arsenal and they could say, I'm still set up for life because I've learned all these skills. And I think, Football never used to do that. And I think it's slowly coming to terms with that because it just eats people up, chains them out. And I think that's the big issue. Yeah, fantastic points. Rob, I'm going to bring you in here because I mean, maybe you can't talk about the players that you do know, but there is this sort of macho perception of what a footballer should be. Uh, is this difficult for players to live up to in that sort of environment? Yeah, like just to touch on what you just said there about the academy system. The academy system in, in England absolutely sucks. 
Yeah, it's about finding that one player who's going to make you a ton of money, find your next Wayne Rooney, and the other 100 kids that you take along for the ride, you just dump. And this is when we talk about mental health as a wider aspect, whether it be for younger people or older guys, the sense, uh, the kind of, not the injustice that you feel, but obviously the journey you've been on and the rejection that you feel at a very early age can be something that you never come to terms with. So you just say now about obviously elite players as well. Uh, these guys, you know, when we talk about what the end product is and that's becoming a superstar or becoming famous or rich, or all of these things. As we always say, and it sounds like a cliche, these things don't make you happy. You know, that's not really what life's about. They can be great professional uh, tools to actually get you somewhere and feel that you've achieved in the sport. But ultimately, it doesn't really have an impact on your mental health. Your mental health is something completely different. So football clubs are coming to terms with that and they are starting to educate the players and the staff around that. But there's certain, certainly still a stigma there, especially with coaching where maybe older coaches still maybe don't grasp the concept of what we're talking about now. Uh, and and it still exists in the game at the highest level. So it, it's something that we need to keep uh, investigating and talking about. But it's really, really tough for the guys that we're talking about who, who play Premier League football or even Championship or any professional football to kind of deal with on their own because it's a really lonely job. You know, you're in a, you're in a team, but as a, as a footballer once said to me, you know, you're in a team of people, but these are your competition. You compete against these people every day in training so they're not it's not just a team sport where you all carry the load you know you have these individual pressures so it, it, it's something that we need to keep going down this journey and this road to find answers do you know what i what i would what i was kind of thinking of there rob when you talk about older coaches with with in academies with players and stuff one of the big things that we've kind of stumbled across as a bit of a a sort of theory almost it's been a bit of a running theme throughout a lot of the interviews is around I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding, particularly in probably in all sports, but I mean, football is the topic that, we, that we've spoken about the most, but about misunderstanding and, and conflating mentality and mental health and, and kind of grouping them together as the same thing. And you've seen a lot now, the advent of sports psychologists are being used a lot more in football. We had um, Dan Abrahams on, who's, who's worked for, mm-hmm. for Bournemouth and, and, and some other clubs as well. And, and he was talking about how his sort of role is very performance-based. So you might have a player who's struggling with something on the pitch and he's brought in to talk to them maybe about how to perform better. And it's not so much about making them either happier or, you know, if they've got issues with sort of depression or anxiety or whatever it might be, it's about improving their performance on the pitch. And whilst I think that's a good step in terms of looking at that aspect of it, what we've got to make sure not to do is to think of them as the same thing and I think they're entirely separate things. You can have a really strong mentality, but have really poor mental health at the same time. And I think those two things can coexist. And that's probably the biggest thing that we can we can start to learn and start to develop on. Yeah, absolutely. They're two separate islands. And I always say this with physical injury. You know, if, if you've twisted your ankle and you're walking around with a hobble, people can say, well, he's got an ankle problem. That's why he's not playing well. If you put someone on a football pitch. Whereas obviously we can't see into the minds of players or people. And it then it, it, we have a perception about someone, don't we? So like if someone has problems with mental health, we immediately perceive them to be weak. Yeah. And that doesn't help anyone. You know, it certainly doesn't help 
the person who's trying to obviously deal with their mental health. And it also doesn't help football clubs. You know, if, if coaches look at it from that angle, they're not getting the best from their players and their employees. So there has to be further understanding from both sides. But like you're saying, now, you're, you're totally right. It's It shouldn't be perceived as a weakness if you if you want to talk about your mental health. Yeah, I think quite the opposite. Sorry, Hayden, I just... I no, think... no, no, guys, carry on. This is brilliant. I'm I'm learning as we go along. So, yeah, carry on. <laughs> Jump in whenever because uh, this discussion is brilliant. I think that's such an important thing that you say, Rob. I think it's it's redefining what strength is and redefining what weakness is. And I think what for a long time has been perceived as a weakness, which is, oh, you know, he's got a weak mentality or he's weak mentally, which is an odd term that we hear in football all the time. Whereas if you think about it, if someone's able, someone, if somebody feels the way that you feel when you're depressed and you're able, and they're still able to get up out of bed to get themselves washed and get themselves dressed, to get in the car and drive to work or drive to training and perform or, you know, even just get through the day, it takes an enormous amount of strength to do that. And, you know, I'm someone who I wake up every day and I take antidepressants and I take, um, I take propanolol as well for, for panic attacks. That's to do that every single day. And I get up for work and do my work and see my friends and, and do all the rest of it. And it takes a lot of courage and strength to do that. And I think changing that conversation and changing the way that we perceive weakness and strength is, is, is something that could do a lot of men a lot of help. Yeah, and that's the question for society, isn't it? Because yeah. I always say that football is a reflection of society, whether you look at the fans or if you look at the players. You know, it's the same as you just said there. You know, you get up, you take your meds and you you fight through the day. And it doesn't matter whether you're at a top Premier League club or whether you're going to the office. You know, these these things affect all of us and the stigma affects everyone, you know. And I think now we're finding in society that people are looking at mental health from a completely different angle. But it's taken 20 years to kind of get where we are here now. And the most important thing is in these kind of divided times that we don't lose that now because it's very easy to kind of go back to old ways and think yeah. old methods and and start thinking like we like you just said there about, you know, do we look at someone and, and perceive them to be weak when talking about your problems and talking through your mental health and trying to find solutions is actually a sign of strength. So I think at the top end of the game where we have the, the you know, the best psychologists and the best sports science, that's now encouraged. And we and, and certainly in our sport, we see that. But that now needs to filter through into everyday life and that the guy in the street can think exactly the same and have the same kind of support, especially when we talk about the NHS. You know, we talk about the support on offer physically. You know, if you're ill, you get the support, don't you, in hospital? But yeah. there's still maybe if you need to see a psychologist, there's still a, a year waiting list. So there's a difference in in kind of outlook and outcome when we talk about mental health. It is not the same. If I broke my leg, I could go to hospital tomorrow and get it seen to. And no one would blink and I would see a consultant later on and it would all be a very quick process. But obviously with mental health, quite often it is an urgent process, but you're told you have to wait for a year. So there's a there's a whole load of questions to be answered. And I yeah. think with, with football as well, I think clubs could do a little bit more in regards to if you take a player who's very injury prone, you'll often find that or we'll get him on a paper play deal or we'll we'll sign him in the hope that we can get 20 games out of him. Or like a Jack Will, should we hope if we can get him anywhere near what he was? Yeah. But they often write off players who may have had a difficult time mentally and they'll say, oh, no, it's, it's, it's a risk not worth taking. So people seem to want to invest in getting people back to physical condition and a physical best, but not a mental best, which I think is quite a shame. We, me and Dan have had a conversation a few times about 
you have a head of nutrition, you have a physio, you have somebody who manages injuries. But a lot of these clubs, even at elite level, don't have a head of well-being, or they're only just getting introduced to them now. And I think it's it's a, an attitude that needs to be mental health is just as important as physical health because it is. But ultimately, it's not treated the same. The question I kind of want to fire over to you, Dan, is that you touched on it about the difference between, for example, if a player goes and sees a sports psychologist because they're mental, for example, they're mentally weak. And I'm using that word in the sense of on the pitch, for example, their composure's off or they're not able to perform to the higher levels because of that issue. But how can someone or the club differentiate between being mentally weak or having mental health problems? Because I can imagine a lot of fans would just say, oh, this person's, let's say a player's looking down, he's struggling. That could very much be mental health problems, not yep. a weak mentality or an attitude. So how can fans be better? But then also how can clubs be better in identifying these issues? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think it's a difficult one because I don't think, I think even, you know, football's a reflection of society and, and I don't think even as a broader society, we've kind of come to the, any conclusion either way as the general public i think one of the things that that, that you can look at is is that just because of just because somebody is playing well and performing well and has as you say an air quote a strong mentality it doesn't mean that they don't go home and cry themselves to sleep every single night it doesn't mean that they don't go home and shut the curtains and sit in the dark because they're too anxious to go out and speak to anybody and those two things are entirely separate i think that that's the biggest thing we have to take on for clubs i think it's just as ryan said there you know they have a head of nutrition, they'll have a head of sports science, they'll have a head of analytics, they'll have a head of this and a head of that. And and, and in there will be a sports psychologist. And the idea will be if somebody's struggling with something, we'll send them to them. I said, well, why don't you have a, a therapist? Why, why, why have we not got a counsellor in there? They say, well, forget the football for now. Let's talk about you. How are you feeling? How are you getting on? And you think ultimately it creates an environment where people are comfortable to say if they're not feeling okay. I think the biggest problem that current footballers have, and that's current footballers of any generation, is that they don't want to talk about it because if they say to to somebody in the club, you know, I'm feeling this way, or you know, I'm not feeling confident, or I mean, you know, my self esteem is lacking, or whatever it might be, the way that might translate is, is he switched on enough to 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 play on Saturday? Is he, you know, is he feeling okay? Is he going? Are we going to put him in the team? And the last thing they want is to lose their place in the team. Football's a very precarious career and you can go from being, you know, one of the best players in the country to, you know, not being quite up to it, you know, the next day. I mean, you don't have to look at someone like Deli Ali and you think he's somebody who two or three years ago people were talking about our oh, space is going to be able to hold on to him. And now he can't even get in the squad. So you can see why they'd be so desperate to hold on to that position in the squad. And if there's an environment created for them to be able to say, I feel like this and the club to understand that that's got nothing to do with their performance, that they can still perform to a high level and still do their job and still be a professional, then that's the kind of place that they need to get to. That's a great point. Has anyone got anything to add to that? One thing we we saw that Trammy did, our local club, which I thought was very good, is they had an app and players had to press like a smiley face every day they came into training to say if they were sad, they were okay, they were happy. And what they wanted to achieve was without directly asking the question where you may not get a direct response, is to just try and monitor if they needed to pull someone to one side and say, how did you sleep last night? Is anything going on in your personal life? So as Danny said, I think you have to create the environment because 
I think with anything like this, it only works if you actually genuinely care. You can't do it because you want to do it out of corporate or social responsibility. You've got to do it because I want to. I want the best for my technically your employees or your players. And I think the clubs that do care will get it right. There might be some bumps in the road, but eventually they'll get it right. But the problem we have is I don't think enough people care. So the environment isn't created and therefore people aren't spotting the signs. If, if Danny's touched on sports psychologists, you hear it all the time. They're brought in to help with penalties or they're brought in to help people with the putt about keeping that focus for that important shot that will win you the game. They're not brought in to, to check if you if what your well-being is overall. They couldn't really care as long as you score the winning goal. So yeah. I think the second you start caring is the, sec the second you're already on the right road to doing something right. So I think it's about having the conversation, creating the environment, and then working with the players as well. Yeah, and also, what you want us to do. Yeah, also in football, you know, football's about winning, not taking part. Yeah, so we, we quite often kind of have cliches again about football and what it actually means to fans. Ultimately, those players are on the pitch to win football matches. That's how football clubs look at it. And that's how fans look at it. And whatever someone's mental health is, is kind of by the by, you know. But again, we're talking about physical health. If a player injures his knee, as I said, or has a shoulder injury or neck injury or something, fans can empathise with that. Quite often when we're talking about the mind and we're talking about how someone feels inside them, that's not something that fans often empathise with, and that's reflected in how football clubs are run. So you're right, it's about caring, and it has to be a, a kind of holistic answer. I always yeah. use that word of everything yeah. Yeah, because it's about it's it's about the, it's about the sport caring, it's about fans caring, it's about people caring about one one another. You know, if you don't care about people, then you can't possibly talk about this subject you know you have to have some empathy somewhere in the middle of it uh, and, and that's been I think the biggest challenge for football because ultimately it's a big money business it is all about fame and success and trophies and the humans kind of come somewhere near the end of it yeah. uh, and, and as long as that's the case we'll never really make progress whether that be in football or in society yeah I don't, I don't think it's helped by the short nature of a manager's position either because if a manager wasn't constantly worried about his job and therefore results-driven, although I understand why it's results-driven, you'd probably find an environment where if there was less chain of players and less chain of managers and the same faces in the building for year on end, you'd probably develop a tighter bunch of people who would probably want to support each other a lot more. Yeah. But it's very cutthroat industry, as we're all aware. Something that I found very interesting, which brings back to the mentality, is did you see the, the Last Dance documentary with Michael Jordan? Yeah. And the, the conversation and divide in there. Now, Michael Jordan did absolutely everything in his powers to win. And he didn't care who he upset along the way. And to him, he ultimately achieved his goal. He didn't do it by being a nice person. And I think sport at the elite level will always have that difficult crossroads of doing the right thing and doing the thing that's necessary to win. Which, as Rob said, it needs to be a holistic approach to try and get the best of both worlds. I yeah, think, I've, I've seen that. Sorry, I've seen that no, again no. with top sport. You know, with, with players, that there is this mentality that you have to be a bastard, yeah, and be yeah. and be harder than hard, and you can step on anyone you want to win, and that's how we raise the kids. You know, when we talk about academies and coming through, this is the kind of examples we set for them and say this is how you need to be. And what you find is a lot of those kids who have got incredible talent simply can't live like that, can't be those kind of people. And that's a really tough thing because you see talent and it's not a case that that talent gets wasted. It's just the way we're pitching it. 
So we're trying to tell these talented players that you have to be Michael Jordan, you know, that you have to be that kind of, you know, double hard person who, who doesn't care about emotion and is bigger than the room, you know, everyone in it, you're the best in it. And you can't live like that. Whereas what the real truth is, is that most footballers are just normal people. Yeah, yeah, even at the top level, when they sit there, they've got families, they've got mates, they've got friends there at the game watching them. And that pressure of walking out, say, an Old Trafford at our football club with 78,000 people there, either cheering your name or sometimes, you know, tutting and booing and hissing if they're, if they're not happy. Exactly, Fellaini. Or, you know, we've, we've had it recently with, with Jesse Lingard, haven't we? It's the same thing. Jesse's spoken, another one as well, Jesse's spoken a lot about his mental health, obviously, recently, and that's been in the press. And uh, there's been lots of discussions about that. But sometimes football isn't the most important thing in your world, even if you're a very well-played footballer. I think um, one thing that's, that's always worth considering as well, and as you say, the players are there to win. But ultimately, if you think about it, and that word holistics is spot on, Rob, is that if if those players are happy and their well-being is taken care of, the likelihood is, is that they'll be better footballers because they'll be happier, they'll be more comfortable, they'll be sleeping better, they'll be they'll be... They'll be just be better people all round. They'll be happier within themselves. And the likelihood is you'll get better footballers out of that because you'll get better people, as Ryan said. Yeah, totally. And I think that's, as I said, like, hey, I know that word holistic. I say it in everything because I think it does mean everything in football in terms of, you know, when we talk to football clubs, we always say, you know, what are you looking to do? And all of them say improve in every facet. That's what they want to do. They want to win on the pitch, but they want to improve their players, their lives, whether it be financially or mentally or, or, or whatever. But you've got to actually do certain things to do that. And it's interesting you just said there the word sleep, because I heard this from a top footballer recently who said, you know, that they couldn't sleep, that they're having problems sleeping, and that was affecting their training, and it was affecting how they felt about themselves and it was affecting their confidence and their self-esteem. And it all was about their sleep patterns. Yeah. Now, I think football clubs have latched onto that. I know in the first, in the last couple of years, they are testing things like sleep and, and stuff like that now. Whereas two years ago, if you'd mentioned that to a football club, they'd have gone, well, it's up to the player to go to bed on time and wake up and come into training. And it's quite often the connections <clears> were not, those dots were not being joined. And again, you can say this with, for all of us, us four sitting here, you know, if we don't get a good night's sleep, if we've, got to, if we've got to work the next day for whatever reason and be at the top of our game, there's a good chance that we won't be at our best. So all of those things need to be taken into account. And with your mental health, things like sleeping and eating and hydration and everything that goes with it is so important. Yeah, it's a great yeah. point. Great. Guys, I'm going to move it on to just a bit of a different direction. We've We've mentioned... The current sort of situation we've seen we've spoken about a few things that clubs are doing but ryan i'm going to bring you into this first how much harder was it for the previous generation compared to the current generation now it's difficult to say because people there's different i guess different challenges right now is the social media which is horrible a player can go on social media and we'll talk about Maguire later and and read disgusting comments um i just want to tell a little story quickly before i ask ask you sort of your view but i did a podcast recently with a tottenham fan really really lovely guy got a massive following um he's been yeah. doing it for 10 years got a very very loyal set of supporters now after each podcast rob knows this i clip it up and i post it out you know sort of to increase engagement etc etc he said this was his opinion he said that the two years under pochettino was he'd rather have those two years where they didn't win anything, but it was amazing, enjoyable football. He had a connection to the club rather than to have 10 years of trophies under Jose. And the comments that he got 
calling him the C word, uh, you know, a, a pedophile, all these things. I hope you, you die, all these sort of things. And eventually I took the video down. I mean, it got 22,500 views. I mean, it was just disgusting. And he actually deactivated. He still got Twitter. I spoke to him actually last week. He's going to come on again probably next week to talk about it. But this is someone who has a different opinion. And he yeah. got he's been driven off Twitter now. That's it. He's going to come on from time to time. But that's made him decide this is not for me. So this is just a normal person every day. Now, if someone walks out on the pitch and sees or has a bad performance and the, the fans see it and they go onto Twitter and they send that sort of hate to him, it's just disgusting. So that's what the current players have to deal with. But in the past, were the dressing rooms more difficult? You've spoken to players who are a little bit older. Yeah. Um, I think overall it probably was harder for a previous generation, but I think sometimes it's not always a case of being harder or easier. It was different. Um, we have to factor in all the variables, I think, and you can't always just take it at face value. I think if you picked up players back then and put them in today's game, it, I suppose the environment in itself is probably easier. Um, but it's a lot more complex now, as and as you've touched on about social media, which I think is causing it's 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 people making comments that they wouldn't make in person, which I think is very dangerous. So while my viewpoint is, I think we're trending in the right direction. I think previously it was much more difficult to get help, and I think former generations it wasn't so much that it was harder for them but they would suffer in silence more which i think has insidious implications when you when you don't speak up i think touched on the way before environments i think the challenges are still there that used to exist but the environment now lends itself to putting your hand up if you're struggling and the the reaction to you putting your hand up i think is better now than it ever has been which I think is the biggest positive change in, in generations. We have spoke to a lot of footballers who said that the changing rooms, even up until the late 90s, early 2000s, were ridiculous. They were pretty much a, a free-for-all. Um, Chris Iwalumo touched on turning the lights on, people throwing punches and then turning the lights on five minutes later. It was that type of place. Um, so I think changing rooms have come along a lot as well. But yeah, it's not so much. I don't. I don't always like saying it's much better now than it used to be because that implicates what we've got now is perfect, and I still don't think it is by a long stretch. But I still think it is trending in the right direction. I think um, one thing that's always useful to kind of look at as a barometer is, I mean, suicide was it was illegal until 1961. That was when the, the legislation changed. So you think of the footballers that were playing in the 70s and the 80s, they'd likely have been alive when it was still a crime. So you'd have to think of what the sort of general public attitude would have been towards suicide and then sort of more broadly mental health around that sort of time. And it's not to kind of denigrate those people or to criticise them, but they just the understanding just wasn't there in the same way that it is today. I mean, we do a, we do a series of, of episodes, um, we do them every other week where we look at like an example of mental health from kind of yesteryear. And a couple of that we had on, we had Robin Friday, who's the the, the winger who played for, for Redden for a few years. And he was a, a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He, he had a whole host of problems that you would now you would now call mental health problems. Whereas at the time, he was kind of known as this kind of rock star footballer. He was known as this kind of maverick and this person who got it. And it was glorified. And, and, and whereas now you look at it and you think, 
that was someone who probably needed some help. He needed someone to put his arm around him. And he, you know, he ultimately lost his life to a heart attack from it from an overdose. And you think there's somebody who was who died in his early thirties, and he lived in an environment where nobody thought that what he was doing was a problem. Nobody thought that he needed anyone to talk to, or or just needed five minutes to, for someone to say, "How are you feeling?" Because you can't be feeling that good if all you're doing all the time is taking drugs and getting drunk. Because there must be something going on. If that was one of your mates now, you'd be like, "John's gone off the rails." Like maybe someone should have a word and see if he's okay. So you'd have to look at it as like the barometer of the environment back then compared to the environment now. It's just like a it's like a different world, and the sport itself is entirely different. And Ryan's right. Both areas come with their own pressures and both areas have their own difficulties. But I do think with every generation, we get closer to what is the best environment for people. Because I do think ultimately, as, as, as Robin Rambo said, it's about caring. And I think the more education there is, the more understanding of mental health, the more people will care. And ultimately, if people care and the heart's in the right place and the finances and the, the resources there, which they are in football, they will get it right. Ultimately, they'll get it right because I think it's the best thing for the people involved. Yeah, we had a, a well-known footballer at our football club called George Best, who was an alcoholic and went through the 60s as being probably one of the most famous people in the country, the fifth Beatle, everything, you know, to English football at that time. And everything he did was on the front page of a newspaper, you know, whether it be what he's doing with the Miss World or which pub he was in or any of that. And, and to this day, it's still kind of celebrated that he was this maverick who, you know, we talk about going for down the pub with George Best and having a drink with him. On the piss with Georgie Best, yeah. The songs, songs, the songs that we sing in the Stratford End for him goes. Yeah. And to this day, that is still not recognised that he was probably suffering from some incredible mental health pressures for him to be able to be stuck in a pub pretty much in all his spare time drinking. And he did that until he died. So that was a, a lifelong problem for him that was never really recognised, whether it be by society or by football, because that was who he was. That's what people expected. And, and I think that now, as you just said, it's changing. Certainly the, the barometer is changing in terms of what the expectation is for a player if they have a problem. But it's still not quite there. And, and yeah. what worries me is because society has gone backwards a little bit in the last two or three years, whether you look at that as being a, the Brexit bubble bursting or whether you, it's a kind of reaction to Donald Trump or the Tories or whoever, you, we're seeing that that we're not quite making the progress in areas uh, that maybe we were five or five years ago where we were thinking about these things and thinking we'd find solutions by now in 2020. And here we are kind of still feeling like we're walking through mud rather than we're kind of getting a trot on now and kind of getting somewhere with these problems. I think it's um I think that that's I think that's very true, Rob, about I think as you say, it feels as though now in 2020 we're almost further back than we were in say 2012. I think people use the Olympics in 2012 as a bit of a market thing. Remember when it was remember when it when it was great. Remember the good old days. Yeah, like <laughs> everyone was happy and getting on. We were all coming out of the session. Yeah, we're all moving in the right direction. Everyone's got money for beer. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And then we're eight years on, and it's an absolute. You don't even want to look out the window. Do you know what I mean? And it's just. But I, I think, it, as you say, it's 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 hoping to get to a place where we can talk about these things. And I think it relates to other sort of things as well. I mean, we we've only had to look at the kind of the stuff that's been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement recently as well. There still aren't any. Uh, out gay footballers at the top level either you know it, it, it you think 
we how how what more needs to be done for us to get to an environment and it's hard it is really hard it's a very complex issue and people are complex and i think that's the sort of the way that we go in especially in this country where people are very much aware that they have a voice and aware that their their opinion is is allowed to be stated but yeah it, it it's it's not perfect by any means it is moving in the right direction but the biggest thing i mean we've said this a few times we don't you can't rest on your laurels you can't think the job's done you can't think it's okay now because the minute that you think that it's okay it won't be okay yeah. because there will always be someone who doesn't agree with that and thinks you know i mean we saw i can't even remember it was somebody tweeted a while ago ryan i think you screenshot and put it in the group and i'm sure it was a, a former footballer who was of a certain age had tweeted something about are all these players coming out saying that they're they're feeling like this? Oh uh, yeah, we'll, I remember we'll, it was as well. <laughs> wouldn't have stood for it in our day. And then he hashtagged it games gone, which which was quite funny to be fair. Hashtag games. Are gone. you able to name and shame Ryan or is it is that not allowed? Oh I, I, it was Ian Marshall used to play up front for I think Everton Olden. and Leicester. Oldham. And Oldham, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was yeah. probably it was He it went was, on a bit of a rant about how everyone yeah. snowflakes. Snowflake. He was yeah. proper old school. He was proper he was, old yeah. school, like Mullet and everything. You know what I mean? He was. I can remember him. Yeah. No. no but it, look, that's individuals' opinions, isn't it? And like, yeah. I'm from the '90s in terms of when I was a kid, and I can remember the first wave of it in the '90s, where we would we thought the world was changing. We thought we'd solved racism. We thought we'd solved homophobia. We'd sort. We thought we'd got there with mental health that people suddenly understood. And then here we are now, thirty years on. 30 years and we haven't really made that progress we talk about these things but we're still talking about it in terms of the stigma that is attached to people whether you know I'm, I'm glad you mentioned black lives matter there because i think that's an, another topic that kind of sits in the same framework where people might understand what the issue is but it's still a hell of a lot of people going mm, i just don't agree with it you know yeah. oh you, you're marching against marching against yeah. this thing oh no no i'm not i'm not into that i don't know why you're you're that bothered about racism and obviously if you're a person of color you know people then go oh well yeah i get why you're bothered about it but why 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 are white people bothered yeah. about it well it's yeah. the same issue isn't it you're you're bothered about it because you believe that it's an injustice so i think as well with mental health it's now trying to find whatever the next step is and it's good to, that we're talking about football here and obviously football clubs uh, initiating progress but it's now about education as well. And it's about, you know, teaching the marshals of the world who might be a little bit older and doesn't really care about it, that this is the way we're going and this is where we're taking the sport and society and you have to come along for the ride. And I, and I think that's the most important part of it when we, we talk about all these isms about, you know, like you said there about there's no out gay footballers, you know, and it's a crazy thing, isn't it? Because what we're yeah. saying is that there are no gay footballers in our sport and it is ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous yeah. and it's a lie and it's not true and you talk to footballers they will tell you what's going on in their clubs but of course it doesn't get reported because it, it becomes more about speculation or tabloidism or whatever you want to call it you know we need someone to come out and actually hold their hands up but what happens to that player the minute they do that we saw what happened with justin fashion didn't we Justin Fashionu was again in the seventies, such a long time ago. You know, we're talking fifty years ago. You know, and look what happened to him. And it took his he took his life in the end. You know, but you look at that, and if there was a, a top class footballer today, say Lionel Messi came out and said he was gay, yeah, what would happen on every football pitch he stepped onto? You know, the the crowd would it'd be it'd be a bloodbath. 
wouldn't it? You know, we'd know how the crowd would react. And that would then be the story, you see. So this is the problem, I think, in society is that we haven't solved that that big question yet about how we react to someone's mental health, you know, when they actually hold their hand up and say, no, I'm being brave here. I want to, I want to tell you what's wrong with me. Then you end up having football clubs saying, well, we're going to end your career because of it. And that's really, really tough for anyone to carry. And I don't know. I don't think we're there yet. We, we, we're going in the right direction, but it's just so much ground to cover. I think one of the one of the important things to always remember, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, is about how we use language and about what language we use, and particularly when it comes to mental health. I mean, like a basic thing is what I mentioned there about suicide was illegal until 1961. Mm. People still refer to someone who dies from suicide as committed suicide, and that's that's just the, the standard phrase that people use. Yeah. And the reason that they use it is because that's what people have always said because it was illegal, you were committing a crime. Yeah. And I think the stigma that's then attached to that because it's a crime and that it was a crime because it was seen as immoral, because it was like self-murder. And, and it obviously all links back into like religion and things like that. But ultimately you change the language, the re it's really important. It's really small things. And I think people go, why does that really matter? It's like when we were in school and I don't know, I don't know if you guys were the same, everything was gay. That's gay that, I'm not doing that, yeah. that's gay. That's gay. And when you're a kid, you don't really understand why that's important. But as you grow up and you think, no, it, it, it is important because you're making something that isn't a thing a thing just by your use of language. And when it comes to things like racism and like um, homophobia, and we've seen it a lot with, with transphobia as well, it's really important the language that we use. It's really important. And if someone pulls you up and says, that's not the right thing to say. People go, oh, it's PC gone mad. You can't say anything these days. Yeah. Just think about the impact that those words can have on somebody else. Because and it's, it's exactly the same with sexism. You know, like it's exactly the yeah. same for women. We get this, we get, especially of our sport in football. You know, we have, we now have two very defined products in the men's game and the women's game. And obviously the women's game's come a really long way in this country over the past few years. Yeah, I still get tweeted constantly when I, when I tweet about Manchester United's women's team constantly people will be say will be throwing derogatory comments at them via my tweets because they believe they're inferior you know and it's and and they look at them as not just as an inferior sporting product but it, they look at them in terms of inferior just because they're women and, yeah. and that's tough if you're a woman carrying that in our sport that's a really tough thing to get up to every day and face you know you want to be elite in that sport and do everything and all the training that goes with it However, you're immediately just devalued. So, again, someone would look at me saying that and they'd go, oh, you're a snowflake. And I get called a snowflake all the time on Twitter because of it, all the time. And you just accept it because that's what one demographic wants to call another at the end of the day. But the, it, these things do matter. And, and I actually tweeted something today and the, the top of the words, I don't know if Hayda read it, was words matter. Yeah, yeah words matter. Yeah. Words really do matter. And it, until we get language correct, especially in English – then we're not going to make the strides forward. And in football, you know, those words are still not being corrected on a on a regular basis. They're still there, present in our society. And I think on that, Rob, football as an organisation, as an entity, it doesn't. It's not very good at having them conversations. It's very awkward about having those conversations. Mm. So it leaves fans to have the conversations. And I mean, you saw this. It was about two years ago now when the England team was racially abused by Bulgaria. Yeah, and yeah. you've got people on the sidelines trying to follow a protocol. Nobody knows what they're doing. You can't have an algorithm to sort racism 
What should have happened there is we take the players off and we refuse to play. And you've even seen that happen in the past where players are begging players who've been racially abused to stay on the pitch. I've even seen people sent off for yeah. reacting to racism. And you kind of like, hold on a minute. There's, there's a very obvious right and wrong in all of this. It doesn't always matter because you've got an opinion that it, it needs to be valued because there's sometimes a very black and white right and wrong answer to and reaction to things and football brushes it under the carpet and allows newspapers and fans to pick it up and discuss it and I think football sometimes and a lot of the, the large media companies should maybe take these subjects and tackle them a little bit more head on and not just not just from a corporate responsibility let's, let's look like we care and do a hashtag I mean actually have the conversation um because if not, you're just allowing people on Twitter and other places to to breed hatred, and it's, yeah. it's gone on for too long. Yeah, and and I think that's that's a really important point that you make because you know we see obviously with the with the major media houses in the UK all, all addressing racism, yeah, whether it be on radio or on television, uh, and and it's a topic that's there all the time. And obviously, everyone is singing from the same song sheet the same thing that racism is wrong, and we want to combat it and beat it. However, the proof is not in the pudding. It's not there. You know, we, we are still seeing racism in football stadiums, whether it be on the pitch or in the stands, whether it's the kind of uh, inherent racism that's just there in the game with no black managers in the kind of in the pyramid structure of the 92. We're still seeing that. Not enough coaches or people of colour. Yeah, th This is still very much present. And it's all very well as having maybe the start of conversations. But if we're not having the kind of wider debates, and this is what really marries into mental health, obviously, what we're talking about here today, it's really, really tough for these players. I know plenty of players that have said that if they're going to be racially abused, they're going to walk off a football pitch. We are yet to really see that in the top, top tier yet. We've still seen instances of racism, but the players have not quite actually had the courage to do it yet. But behind the scenes, they're saying to us, that's what we want to do. You know, if we, if we suffer racism, we're going to collectively walk off together. And that's the next step. And I, I said this at a forum not so long ago, a year or so ago. And I said, you know, we need that now to happen. We need that to happen for someone to walk off and them to end that game and say, we are not playing. And the response was from both fans and other journalists was, yeah, but that's a, a kind of weak response because, we, you know, we have to fight it. We have to talk about it and we have to find a way. And I'm like, well, here we are all these years later. We haven't found a way yet. You know, we're 50 years on from the conversation starting. We haven't found a way yet. So you, first of all, you have to protest and say, no, we're not playing your sport. You know, your sponsors are not going to have their name across our shirts. We're, you know, we're not going to dance around for you when we're being racially abused by both the system and both by people. You know, it's, two, it's a two-tier thing. That there are people that I completely disagree with the idea that the players should stay on. And then when people say that, it's saying you're letting them win. It's, it's nonsense. I don't know why this narrative is pushed. I mean, obviously, you're working in the media and we've had many discussions. Obviously, we had a discussion, look, I'm BAME, you know, you're BAME, etc. We've had discussions around this. And there's obviously now a conscious effort to, for example, bring more, you know, ethnic minority and black people into the media. But I haven't seen, maybe Mike Richards is one of them, but I haven't seen many people tackle it head on like for example on sky sports on the soccer saturday i think michael richards did one last season which was really well i think it's about himself actually about how he's grasped the opportunity but i haven't seen anyone tackle it and is there this idea that even people in the media who are of you know who are bame they're actually scared to say something so outright against it just in case they might not get another contract of course absolutely 
You know, this is still a white man's world. You know, the media houses are run by, you know, white power. You know, and this is this the truth. You know, it's who I work for. So I, I can say that I think with confidence because I, I feel that there, there is a background to that and, and evidence and all of that. However, if you've just scored a big job on Sky Sports and you're sat in front of a camera, you have a producer in your ear. You have a director who runs it, you know, and you have people at the top who are obviously feeding information down. So you have to be careful. You have the platform to talk about it. Obviously, you just mentioned Mika Richards there, and he has spoken about it, you know, uh, when he's been asked about it. But it's still a very, very difficult subject to broach yourself. You know, you very rarely see a pundit who, who might talk about a player who, who would then say, oh, you know, that player, the racism that he's suffering, that might be affecting his performance. When do you ever hear a pundit say that? But that's the actual truth. That's the actual truth that's happening. But we're still not seeing that as a reflection, either in the punditry or how we assess the game. And that teaches the fans a certain way. It tells the fans that this is how the sport is and these are the rules and you've got to stick to them because this is how we've created this sport. And the truth is that that's the problem. You know, We have to break those rules down and actually find ways of, of having these conversations honestly and not just for television. I think one really good example of that, Rob, is um, was anyone watching, uh, I don't know which match it was, when I think it was the United Tottenham match, actually. Sorry to bring that up again, lads. Uh, <laughs> Got on that. Was... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Dan. It's, it's, to be honest with you, it's, it, we're Tammy fans. It's very hard for us to have any sympathy. You did whack us 6-0 last year. So, yeah, Harry um, Maguire scored from like 30 no, years. No. Well. It, it wouldn't be so bad, but the first four minutes, we had you boxed in. Had like three corners. We I were honestly up. thought we were going to lose that game. Going into that game. Game. Yellow. I know. Um, <laughs> But yeah, in that the punditry after that game, Graham Sooness, I think it was, was talking about how what Lamella did was very Latin. He referred to it as uh, in terms of the way he went down. And what I thought was very interesting about that was, was I saw a few different reactions to that on Twitter. Some people saying it was, you know, oh, it's stereotyping and it's it, you know it's old fashioned all sort of stuff. Um, Filippo Claire, who's a journalist who does um, stuff for the, I think it's stuff he's on the Guardian Football yeah. Weekly quite a lot, isn't he? And he was right. saying how. Um, he didn't find it offensive because he 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 find would define himself as being Latin, and he was saying that that is part of our football culture. There are different football cultures, and we do things in a different way. And he was saying, but the problem that he had with it was that Sky did an apology about it. Graham Sooners just sat in the background like a naughty school child who'd who'd been slapped and told to sit down, rather than just the the, the, the presenter going, "Well, explain what you mean by that," because Graham Sooners might have said there are different football cultures and people do things in different ways. And that has been a really interesting adult and open discussion about the views he might have had. He might not have had prejudiced views about that. It may have just been from his experience of playing football. People from this country and this area play differently to the way that we play. And it's not right or wrong. It's just a different way of playing. In the same way that Luke Shaw absolutely siding down Lucas Moore as he's running through. People in Latin countries might say, that's a very English thing to do. Do you know what I mean? And and I think mm. rather than having an actual conversation about it, they just avoided it altogether. They just completely this is, avoided yeah. it. Yeah, and this is why we say words matter because this I, I I spoke about that afterwards about that comment from Sunes, and um, he, the the way he framed it was the issue, not what he was saying. The context was correct. You know, South American players or or players from Latin countries will openly tell you that they will do whatever it takes to win. You yeah. know, if they have to foul someone in, you know, in the game and bring down someone on the edge of the box rather than them scoring in the last minute, and it means their team wins one nil, 
they will be celebrated for it. Their fans will celebrate them and their clubs will celebrate them for it. Whereas in our country, we have this kind of high, mighty righteousness. Uh, when that happens, at least said the Luke Shaw one, you know, Luke Shaw should have been sent off for that tackle. Straight well, red. If, yeah. if, that, if that had happened, actually, in one of the South American leagues, the player would have been celebrated for it. It would have gone, oh, well, it happens as part of the game. You know, that's part mm -hmm. of our game. You know, it's more about how it's pitched. And you said this guy apologised for it afterwards. And... Really, what, what Sky needs to apologise for is how things are framed. They don't need to apologise yeah. for the specific language because the word Latin isn't racist. Yeah, to describe someone being from a Latin country isn't racist. But the way that Graham was putting it across wasn't the right way to put it, you know, because yeah. he was blaming his ethnicity for what yeah. he was doing. And that was the problem. He was saying, oh, because, because he's from that yeah. kind of country, that's why he kind of went down easy. Look, we could sit here and go on all night about English players that have gone down easy. Yeah, I can name a name hundred of them. Uh, but it's not the truth. You know, at the end of the day, it's not really what the topic is about. So so for me, that's more of the discussion about making sure that, that the language that we use is correct. We just had today one of our legends you know, talk about our striker saying that he feels conned by him because he's not played well for the first three games, so he's not sure if he's a decent striker anymore. And he used the word conned. It was the wrong word. You know, if you're a pundit, use the right word, for God's sake. That's your job. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's what you're there for. It doesn't matter whether you're... Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, you've been educated or not, or you've got an A-level here, an A-level there, or you're a footballer. You know, use the right language because you're there to communicate to your audience. So it doesn't that matter if you're a legend. You, you don't get carte blanche just because you're a legend to say anything you want. You know, yeah. if you're communicating to a football audience, you have to tell them accurately what you're saying. And saying that you're conned by a player because I've had two or three bad games is absolutely the wrong language because then that goes into social media and it becomes a thing. It lives on its own. And fans immediately say, well... Yeah, maybe he's conning us. That's right, actually. You're right, you know, Mr. Skulls. That's who Probably. it was. The other angle is that and I've seen... The other angle I've seen... Last last point on this, guys, because we've got to talk. move on. We've got two more questions. But um, the last... What I saw regarding this comment was actually people made it like a xenophobic thing. They were saying, oh, well, he doesn't say anything against Rashford or Shaw, etc. but it's because Martial's French. There's, there's a section of the fan base that think that. And that in itself is damaging as well because it's just creating more divides. Yeah, and but because you leave it open to interpretation. So if you say conned, then people are going to say, well, why do you feel conned? You know, is it about football? What What is it about? Now, I'm absolutely sure that Paul Scholes meant it about football. Totally. You know, he's talking about it from a, a football angle. But then when it when you add up all the pieces, and we're talking about Martial's three performances this season, that's what he's, he's basing it on. And last year he was saying he was he's a top-class striker. He scored more than 20 goals and got 12 assists and was absolutely in the elite category of numbers when we talk about the sport of scoring goals. Then how has it changed in two weeks of the new season? So this is what we're talking about. And it, so language does matter across... The, across a variety of subjects and if you say that some you feel conned by someone you better back it up yeah Sorry. tell us why what, why do you feel conned or you could just say he's not the right player for me for me now he's not the right player you know i think that united should go and buy another striker because this striker is better i think harlan's more suited than marshall you can say that but say it in the correct way when you start using divisive language and language that creates division then people will question you and rightfully so yeah, well said. Ryan, I'm going to come to you for this next question. So we've spoken a little bit, Dan mentioned it earlier about those players that didn't, I think it might have been Rob actually, that didn't quite make a career in football. And then they get dropped by society. 
it's almost as if actually people are forgetting that whole group of people because as you say it's a 0.05 percent that actually make it to the top of the game but as you said earlier those who who are younger put all the eggs in one basket and don't make it they're just cast aside aren't they and is that a societal problem a society doing enough to support them i think it's it's a bit of both i think first and foremost the club has a responsibility um Rob touched on it earlier. Unfortunately, players are just commodities, especially at that age. So they'd rather cast a net big enough for 200 young um, girls or boys in the hope to catch one superstar. And the others are just making up the, the numbers. And the sad part about it is there'll be, there'll be coaches who know that a footballer at 15 isn't going to make it, but they'll string them along until they're 18 because they need a side. He's good enough to make up the numbers, but he's never going to be good enough for the first team. Um, I also think there's probably a, a bit of an issue in this country with clubs hoarding players. So what we're seeing now is, I mean, we, we've both mentioned we're Tramia fans. Tramia have always had a relatively successful academy. And one of the reasons being is the North West is a, is a hotbed for football. Same way Rochdale, Berry, Bolton have probably benefited from Manchester United and City's academy. Tramia have always benefited from Everton and Liverpool. Now, we always benefited when we picked up players who were released maybe at 15, 16, spent two or three years with Tramia, take a Jason Kumas, for example, and we're in the first team by 1920. Unfortunately, a club like Liverpool now will hold the player till he's 23 and they'll loan them out maybe once in that period because what we're seeing now is managers don't want them to learn bad habits, play on worse pitches, play with worse players. So they're not scared. They're too scared to put them in the first team. They're not comfortable sending them out. And in the end, they just become a waste of talent. And not a wasted, not somebody who's 16, who's maybe a rough diamond, who someone can go and polish. He's someone who's 23, who's now going to be thrust into a man's game. He's only ever played under 23 football. And they're just not ready for it. And I think that's the kind of problem that you've got to be honest and treat these people as humans and not just as commodities. I appreciate you can't dish out 20 contracts a year. Clubs would love to, but they can't. But equally, you've got to give them the best shot at life um, after your football club and I don't think clubs do I think that's where they let them down where they string them along um, I do think again like everything we've discussed tonight we are trending in a better direction um, we are seeing a lot more education there's a lot more opportunity now for players abroad um, you see a lot of players who take scholarships into the States you see some people join a lot of English lads are now going to Germany as we're all very well aware because the opportunity is better so Football growing, uh, growing globally, will benefit these young players. But equally, there's only so many contracts. And I do think football has a responsibility to them as people before it does as, as footballers. And that's where it needs to catch up. I think you make a really good point there, Ryan. I think we've spoken to a couple of, uh, of people who kind of were on the cusp of making first teams and then haven't quite made it. For, for I mean, normally it's injury, but there can be one reason or another. But I think what we kind of have to think about is, is that if you're somebody who's been in an academy system since you were sort of seven, eight, nine years old, by the time you get to 17, 18, 19, where the point where you're no longer a, an academy player, you're going to become a first team player. And if you get let go at that point, that's something that you've basically thought about doing for your whole life. Your entire life was fixated around. And we know it. You remember the kids that you were in school with that were in academies. I can I can reel them off now. There was three lads in my year who were in academies. None of them made it as one of them made it as a as a, as a footballer, but the other two didn't. And 
you just kind of there going, that's that's John who plays for Man United. That's that's Steve from Liverpool. That's 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 Tony who plays for Everton, and that's their identity. Their identity is wrapped up in this whole thing of being a footballer, and all their self esteem is wrapped up in it as well. And then literally to go from being Tony the footballer, John the footballer, Dave the footballer to just Dave. And footballers have to tackle it at the end of the career. And it's hard enough when they're in their mid to late 30s. It's even more difficult when you're 17, 18. And you, you, people at that age struggle with their identity anyway. That's a big thing when you're obviously going from being a teenager into being an adult. Your identity is a really difficult thing to nail down. And when it's linked into your self-esteem, that's when stuff like anxiety and depression and things like that can just can just hit you so quickly because you haven't got that basis to fall back on of, well, I want to be a footballer, but I'm not defined by being a footballer. But the environment is created such that you're going to be a footballer. You're going to be a footballer. That if you know the pinnacle of this, this everything is to be a footballer. Like it'll be the best thing in the world. You you have to work so hard. You have to give up everything to do it. And if you don't make it, how can people like that not feel like a failure? How can they not mm-hmm. feel as though they've not you know done the thing that they were meant to do? And there's so many people who just fall out of the game. And clubs, I mean, it's difficult for clubs because ultimately they can't look after everybody. But the game itself needs to be set up in a way that says to them that they'll that there'll be exit paths for them if they don't make it, and there'll be things for them afterwards so that they'll 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 you know soften that blow. We, we Ryan mentioned the the, the, the Tramere College when we spoke to Mike Kinsella, who was the um, he, he kind of runs the college. He said that the way their attitude towards it is is that they don't tell them they're going to be footballers. He said, if they if they make it as footballers, then that's a bonus. But they don't. Their the, the fixation is on the education and getting them to a point where if they become a footballer, that's just a bonus. Yes, yeah, what I was going to say that's that, about, about, about the education side of it, because that is all key. Now, when we talk about mental health, and we're talking about you know young, you know guys going into and young girls as well going into this sport and finding a route into life. You know how how do they find? their own identity in their own space and in football there is this kind of all-encompassing thing that you have to you have to be great and if you're not great then you're going to fall off the edge of the cliff and that's it but it's actually a much bigger story before all of that you know we're talking about trying to to make your way in life and if education is not there and everything is just about kicking a ball around a football pitch then the day it comes and and as we just said you know, it's the 0.01% who kind of get through the game and actually have a career out of it and can make some money from it and have a life, then what happens to everyone else? And it's those it's those people that we need to look at and find find paths for them and education so they can they can look after themselves as well. So they know that there's support out there. And I think football clubs are better at it now, but only still at the very I think at the top end. When I say top end, I'm talking about the professional sport, you know, further down. Uh, the pyramid where there's less resources, we're still just, you know, you, you might play for your local team who are maybe a, a League Two team or a conference team or something like that. And if you don't make it, that's it. Goodbye. You're giving your cards, you're told to leave and you don't play for them ever again. What do we do with these people? So it, it, this has to try and find a, a kind of an answer for everyone because it's still, you know, it's definitely getting better, but it's, it's inconsistent, isn't it? It's inconsistent. That's the word I'm trying to find. Yeah. You're right. It's 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 not across the board. It's it's only really there uh, at a certain level, and that's because the resources are different. And I think that's inconsistency, particularly with mental health, is such an important way because often these things kind of rely on the fact that 
if you are in a situation with a good if you if you have the right person who happens to be looking after you you'll have a good experience and if you're in a situation where you don't have the right person looking after you you'll have a poor experience mm-hmm. and mental health is a massive part i mean i know i know two people who've 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 been in hospital after uh, attempted suicide and one of them thought that the service that they got from the mental health team afterwards was great and the other one thought it was terrible and thought they were just left to their own devices and what will have happened is is the person who thought it was great would have just happened to be under the care of someone who was really great at their job and the other person will either have been not great or overworked or whatever was the problem there's a systematic kind of failure in so much as it's inconsistent across the board and it goes the same for football clubs as well if you're in a football club that cares and has the right people in the right places it'll go well for you but do the FA or the EFL or the Premier League or you know any of these organisations are they knocking on the door and going, "What are you doing? Like, what are you doing for these people? How are you helping them?" And that's that they need to be doing that more to ensure that as employees, as employers of these people, that they're taking care of their well-being. Yeah, it's got to be safeguarded in the same way you'd have Ofsted for a school or you'd be audited for as a care home or whatever it may be. It needs to be treated in the same way. As a live example, Man United did it absolutely brilliantly this year. When coronavirus hit, they refused to release any of the second-year scholars because they And it, that doesn't have to... I mean, some players, if you're going to make it as a professional footballer, there's an element of it that you have to do yourself and you have to have the certain amount of ability. Yeah. But there was an example of a football club just doing the right thing by not leaving it to chance, they said, well, this isn't fair to release these players into the world during a pandemic when it's difficult to get jobs, when we haven't probably given them the, the opportunity that previous scholars have had. And it was a quite an easy decision to make. It probably cost them maybe a couple hundred thousand pounds over the duration. But in terms of a, a club the size of Man United, it's, in my opinion, money well spent. And I think clubs don't always have to do these really radical things it can be little changes, and as as we said, it starts with caring, and that showed the compassionate side. Whoever made that decision at Man United made an absolutely brilliant decision, and I think clubs need to learn from that. It doesn't always have to be this new, innovative way of, of working. It can be just simply doing right by the people who you employ, and I think the more of that we see, the better it'll be for these players, and hopefully resulting in less ill mental health further down the road. Yeah, well said. Guys, final, final, final question. I'm going to start with you, Rob, because um, we're both United fans. Harry Maguire obviously suffered a very traumatic event this summer. I was speaking to Dan and Ryan about it off air and, you know, something that Dan did say, I'll let him talk about it later, but in more depth, he said, you know, if that was one of your mates who'd gone through that ordeal, you'd be like, are you all right? You know, you'd be really concerned. But it does seem to me, from what we've seen on Twitter, I know you've had a few discussions with people on Twitter about it, Fans have completely disregarded that, as if that never really happened, just you know, in the distance, distant past. And they just sort of show that the stigma is still there with mental health or effects of a traumatic experience. I mean, it could even be something like PTSD. Obviously, we can't go and diagnose these things without knowing all the facts. But Harry Maguire is not right. We're United fans. We've seen him. He does not look okay. His performances are alarmingly poor. He's in the spotlight at probably one of the biggest clubs in the world as captain. And it seems to me a lot of fans have just dismissed the mental impact of that event. 
Yeah, I think it's first of all, it's really important to point out that, that Harry Maguire has spoken about his mental health. So everything we talk about when it comes to him is presumed. You know, we can, we're only looking and observing. I think ultimately, you know, if you've been through something as harrowing as that he's been through, you know, where he thought he was going to lose his life, you know, he, he admitted that. He spoke that, he said that in his BBC interview. And he also has been under the trauma of possibly going to jail for it, for, you know, for the incident. That is a really difficult thing for anyone to handle. Doesn't matter whether you're clever, intelligent, thick, doesn't matter whatever you want to be described as. Ultimately, that is a really emotional thing to go through. And it can only impact your mental health. It must have some impact on you, would any one of us. And that hasn't been taken into account, certainly with his football. And, you know, we know he's not played well for United this season. We know that he looks different. And when I say that, you can see that maybe in his demeanour that, you know, he looks a little bit withdrawn. But this is our assessment, my assessment as a football journalist looking at a player. But there's been no kind of, I don't know what the word is, trying to, there's been no sympathy towards what he's been through. What, what you do find is a lot of fans saying, well, he deserves it. Well, he was a part of it, so he deserves it. He deserves everything he gets. And then you get other fans who are kind of the complete, you know, opposite side of it. And they just look at the, the game and they just go, well, he's not playing well, so I don't care. So there's no empathy on either side of the kind of the, the opinion when, when it comes to, especially when it comes to Twitter. And I think, unfortunately, now we live in this world where social media drives absolutely everything, both our, our normal media and all of our lives. We got our news from Twitter and we're getting our news from sources that, that are not trusted. It's not, it's not the truth. It's just they're not, they're not real sources, some of them. And when it comes to football, it's really, really tough to, to kind of listen to some of it because some of the things I've heard from pundits about Harry Maguire just kind of make me cringe because there's no empathy in what they're saying. It's just purely about the way he kicks a ball around the pitch. So I think it's really difficult for Harry Maguire. I would have liked to see Manchester United take him out of the firing line. You know, I don't think anyone under those kind of pressures should be working because Again, would you send someone to an office to go and work like that if you want them to perform at their best? I don't know if you would. You would you would consider taking them out of the firing line. But when you're at Manchester United, you're a world record defender. You're the captain of the football club. The temptation from both club and player is to get on a pitch. That's the bottom dollar because it's the, it's the financial side of it. It's the glory. It's Manchester United. You're in the spotlight. As I said the other day, the other flip side of that now is if Ole did take him out the team, everyone would say that's an advocation of his performances and so, say, well, he's not good enough. So that's why they've taken him out of the team. So I think for United, they have tried to protect Maguire through this whole period and they've done that consistently with players for the last 20 or 30 years all the way back into Fergie's tenure. And they've tried to do the right thing, but I think maybe he shouldn't be on a football pitch at the moment for, the, for his own mental health. I, um, I think it just it kind of, it just extends to that, sort of thing where footballers aren't especially at the top level aren't seen as human beings they're not portrayed as human beings they're not treated like human beings the the, the standards that we expect from them you know uh, you know the kind of the royal way that they did the way that they're expected to live their lives the way they're expected to behave they're expected to talk the way they're expected to look and perform at all times yeah the racehorses yeah, they're they, they, that's how they treat. They're like they're like really great animals that can jump hurdles. Yeah. So you just you know you pat them, you look after them, you know you feed them, and go and get out there and jump. Yeah, that's kind of and I think it's, it's like twofold really. I think you 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 watch Sky Sports, and 
just before a game or highlights for the game or whatever it might be. And it involves a slow motion replay of a footballer who's running arms outstretched in the rain, looking like an absolute Adonis, normally with thousands of people screaming their head off behind them, jumping up and down. And you think you you portraying them like the, the Avengers. You're not portraying them like they're normal people. And I get why they I get why it's done like that. But you can't be surprised that when people are portrayed in that manner, that they're not also treated like human beings like you and I would be. If you know, if you think about imagine you imagine you've gone through the thing that he's gone through, as you say, Rob, there he genuinely thought he might lose his life. His sister was in what he 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 perceived or what might have been a really, really genuinely chaotic and dangerous position. He's done it all in the public eye. He also faced going to prison. At the same time, he was also having questions about whether he should be in the England squad, whether he should still be Man United captain. Is he still going to be able to do his job properly? All that sort of stuff. And then he goes to work. He's not quite performing the same way he was at work. If it was in your work, if you went into an office, as you say, and someone was just, you know, they weren't quite themselves. And, and the reaction was of people to go, he's shit him, isn't he? He's shit at his job. Isn't he proper shit? Should we just sack him and get somebody else in to do his job? You'd be like, can someone phone a union at this point? Because this is just out of order. But because they're footballers, it's like, oh, well, he gets paid however much, so he should be fine. And you think... You can't just swallow a ten pound note and that makes him feel better. Yeah, you know what I mean. It, it, he's a human being. He's gone through an incredibly traumatic thing. He might be the person who's pushing to play. He might that might be what he wants to do. But I think that the football club should should take his well being into account and make the decision themselves and say we don't think that it's right for you to be working at this time, whether or not you think that it is, and we're going to take care of you by removing you from the firing line. And I get why it's a difficult position, but ultimately. If he's not right, he's not right. And that's not going to benefit anybody for him to just continually be put out there. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. I agree. I think people think money's a shield and it isn't. And if you put the historical context into Harry Maguire's last four years, he played every minute for um, Leicester at 17-18. He then goes to the World Cup to which England get to the third and fourth playoff if you want to take it to the last game. Then as a small break then, then he has another season at Leicester. Then he joins the biggest club in the world for the largest fee for a defender. Then we have coronavirus. He didn't get he the ball, did he? <laughs> he, uh, and he played every, and he played every minute for United last year as well. Every minute. Every minute for United. Oh, and then he couldn't... Historically, footballers have always had a relatively decent break. And that break's disappearing over the years with extra tournaments or trips to America or to the Middle East to have a game of football. And I think... The players are generally burnt out. And when your body's tired and when you're physically tired, you're mentally tired as well. So to, to have that on top. And then within a couple of hours of that news breaking for your phone to be buzzing and there's different gifts and there's different jokes about them for him and his family, that that is extremely traumatic because everything these footballers do is put under a microscope. And they're not allowed to live their lives and be Harry Maguire the person. He's always Harry Maguire the footballer. And lo and behold, you see it as well, that how funny individuals are that they'll give somebody as much stick as they want. They'll call them all sorts. But if any footballer on Twitter has a little laugh back or makes a joke back to a, to a, to a normal, yeah. or an ordinary person, we'll call them, everyone's like, how dare they speak to me like that? He's got no right. You think, look what you've just said to him. As a person, as an individual, and and then think about it when you're offended when they say something back. It's just right. It's Some of the stuff that I've seen on Maguire and Rob, you'll know this. You're very, you're obviously you're on football, uh, Man United football Twitter. It is actually disgusting. 
And it's not even talking about his performances. I mean, it's pretty bad anyway. It's overreaction. Worst ever captain at United. Worst ever signing. All this rubbish. It's not true. But it, it, it even goes to his appearance. You know, obviously the slab head. I don't like when people call him slab head. I mean, I always thought it... Obviously, they're talking about it because of his ability of heading the ball, but people are using now that as like an insult for the way he looks. Mm. And Rob, you'll see this. His mum, his sister's not so much anymore. His mum is very active on Twitter. I always see her mm. tweeting, like, good luck, Harry. Haven't seen her at all. Imagine your mum seeing random people abuse you on Twitter. Yeah, you just got to think about it. Yeah. But who your mum My mum does mom. see people abuse me on Twitter and go, what's going on there? It does happen, and, that, and I'm no one. So this is the thing. It's, it, it, you know, for players, the kind of volume that they get in terms of the abuse is incredible because it's so amplified. And even someone, like I've got 21,000 followers on Twitter through my work. I get called all sorts of names. Someone, you know, tweets me every day and says that I'm bald, you know, all sorts of stuff, and we can kind of have a kind of brush it off because it doesn't mean anything to me but you're right you know in terms of physical appearance and stuff like that harry Maguire's had the whole spectrum uh and you know what if you're black you get it even worse you know because yeah, then you get the racism top on top of it as well so this, this is this is what happens all the time and i think for harry Maguire, i think the bigger picture is the kind of abuse that his family have suffered off the back of this because this was a family event it wasn't just harry Maguire. You know, out on his own with with a mate. This was this something that happened to his whole family. You know, while he was out there in Greece, and that's something he's having to manage because he's the guy who's famous. He's the guy that people are interested in, and he's the guy whose performance will be assessed continually, game to game to game to game. And we'll probably be talking about this still in a year's time. We'll either be saying, "Yep, he recovered and he did well, and that's that," or we'll be saying, "No, he got worse. He got dropped. He's out the team. Oh, Man United have sold him now." For him, the story continues, and that's a really difficult weight to carry for any individual. Uh, I always say to people, you know, with Twitter and things like that, turn it off. You know, if it hurts you, you've got to turn it off because if you're part of that ecosystem, you're in trouble. But, you know, I know people that know Caroline Flack, yeah, and what she went through in the final year before she committed suicide. And they're all devastated because all of her friends obviously saw what happened to her. And she lost her life because of it, partly because of the media attention and how it was pushed forward, but a lot to do with social media and how you feel when you read one of those tweets. And every now and then, one of them does get to you, even for me. You know, I, I feel like I'm bulletproof to most of it. But every now and then, someone will say something and it will just kind of pinch and you kind of think, turn it off. Mm. But for footballers, it's really, really difficult because... Social media is part of their world, part of their branding, and they're all they're all in the thick of it. Uh, there's two or three footballers I know who are, who are not on social media at all, no Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, and those few are very, very happy individuals. They're just not interested in it, and they are happy just to stay away and to be private and just go and do their jobs on the pitch. But that's not the norm. Most players are, are part of that world. Kader, Rob, can I ask you both a question then as United fans? So... It's probably a little bit different for, for me and Dan because we tend to have quite a lot of respect for the likes of Harry Maguire because we've seen them in the lower league. So I've seen Harry Maguire at 20 play at Prenton Park for Sheffield United. We've seen Jamie Vardy come through. We saw Deli Alley when he was at MK Don. So yeah. for us, it'd be we would never really be like their rubbish at football because they've gone from playing our local team to playing for England and those type of things. And with Tramia fans... And with lower league fans, we often argue amongst each other from difference of opinion, which is natural. But for Man United fans, 
and the same with Liverpool and City and all the other big clubs, is you have a lot of people on social media who claim to re represent the club and claims to be fans of the club, but they're faceless. No one's ever seen them. They might have never been to a game. They're, they've got Man United logo as the badge. They've got hashtag MUFC and they have outlandish opinions. And that gets caught up in the whole sphere of being Manchester United. It gets caught up in the football ecosystem, as you've touched on. But they don't, by any stretch of the imagination, really support the football club. So how do you sort of differentiate the actual United fans, the sort of wannabe United fans? And how do you sort of get a sieve through all of that? Because it must be a bit of a mess when it all comes together online. Do you want me to take this one first, Rob? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Look, um... Let's just look at the United fan base, right? So I, I spoke to someone the other day and we actually differentiate different groups within the United fan base. You've got the love United, hate Glazers, which has become anything but that. They now hate United and they abuse and they... I mean, remember Max Taylor? Um, do you remember him, Rob? The player that um, overcame cancer in the academy? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you remember that? I saw comments basically saying... Basically going in on him about his cancer saying it's not even a big deal and things like that. Discussing comments. Then you've got those that love Jose Mourinho and they'll make that well known. You've got those that obviously consider themselves... I Look, I'm not from Manchester and I've had a lot of things said to me. Oh, why are you doing a podcast about United? You're, you're not from Manchester. So you get that. There's, I have had that from people that live in Manchester or who are Mancunian. They're considered top reds, I would say. And then there's a group of people who are overseas, obviously. And these are very, very committed people that get up at 4am to watch United play. They won't miss a game. And what I found personally is the ones who have bigger followings will just pander to what they think will get them more clicks, more likes, more retweets. That's my, that's my sort of impression of it. And there are fans. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday, Rob, and there are fans that actually probably don't really support United, but they see United as a way to up their profile. See as a way to perhaps get a different job and unfortunately, I think you can't turn around to someone and say you're not a real United fan. I think if you want United to lose, as, as me and Rob were talking about the other day, then you can. But unfortunately, in, when you've got a club that obviously at that stature and the fan base that big, you're never going to have a United fan base. And there's nothing really you can do. All you can do is try and be measured, try and be reasonable, try and be objective. But... Being a United fan at the moment is, pro I think, last seven years have been difficult. But at the moment, it's probably I found it very, very difficult. I wake up, go on Twitter, and it's just shit, bullshit, and it's difficult. Yeah, I called it the other day the collective neurosis of Manchester United fans, because that's where we are with United. You know, as as a supporter base, the fans hate the owners, the fans hate the football, the fans hate the players. They don't want the manager. They don't want anything. They're just in a really bad place. So when you start and you look at the fan base and say, right, what 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 is a Manchester United fan? Like you just said there, Hader, it's exactly the same. There are there's guys in Australia who get up in the middle of the night and guys in America who you know across the world who who are committed as any fan. I, I say myself, I'm a Boston Celtics fan. I love the NBA. I'm up at 3 a.m. watching games and it kills me. Yeah, but it's part of my life. You know, I love love the team and I follow them. So I empathize with United fans that that do the same. However, the problem is with social media, if you just use someone's profile or well, their words or their tweets to define whether they're a good fan or not, then it's pointless. It's pointless because you, you can't define it because it's hot air. It is just this echo chamber that goes on and on forever. And the best thing to do, I will say to people, to not ignore it because I'm part of football Twitter, 
you know, I, I have my opinions and people respond. Don't have notifications. Don't be part of that ecosystem. Just get it out your life, dip in when you want and dip out. And then you don't see most of it. And I, I'm like that. People say, oh, did you see this when these went off with these United fans? And I'm quite often like, no, because I'm not interested. So I just turn it off. And that's the best advice I give to anyone. We don't need to judge whether someone loves United or not. We can't judge that at the end of the day. You know, I go to the games. I love United. I'm a journalist. I'm very, I feel very privileged that I get to do that. And there's lots of people that don't. But I'm not a better fan than anyone else. And I don't think we should look at it like that. And, and it's difficult for a club like ours because we are one of the biggest clubs in the world, billion fans. How do you cipher decipher down a billion fans? It's can't sieve that down, can you? It's impossible. So it is what it is, and we I think we we just have to accept it. And if United started winning tomorrow, look at all these Liverpool fans that are suddenly all very happy. Yeah, these Liverpool mm. fans have been in a 30 years, you know, neurosis of 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 going around in circle with not winning. And I think that's connected quite often with with fan bases. And United fans are there now, you know, because we're not winning. And if they started to collect a few trophies. If United won the Premier League this year, I think suddenly people would be a lot happier on Twitter. Yeah. Maybe. Guys, it shouldn't, look, it shouldn't just be connected to winning, but it is, unfortunately. Look, especially when we talk about Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Look, I know, Ryan, you've got to put your boots on. You're going to be playing football in the... So, <laughs> in, yeah. It's been absolutely <laughs> fantastic, guys. Dan, thank you very much. I've honestly learned so much. I might have been a bit quiet, but I'm just absorbing it all in because... You know, there's so many facets to the conversation which I've never even thought about. So, Dan, thank you very much for coming on, mate. No, thanks for asking us, mate. It's been it's been really enjoyable. It's been um, it's been nice to, to, as you say, put a put a face to the name. Yeah. Same same for yourself, Rob. It's been really nice speaking to you. Absolutely, Ryan. Thank you, mate. It's really good to see you. I haven't spoken to you obviously for a long time. I'll ask you where can the listeners find your podcast and any of your your articles or information that you guys uh, tweet about. Uh, our Twitter is at uh, Mark and underscore Man. Uh, and the podcast, you can find it on all the, the usual places, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the rest of it. Um, yeah, come and get involved. Come in there. Come and use the hashtag Ways to Talking, lads. And uh, yeah, there's there's loads of stuff on there for you to come and get involved in. Awesome. And Rob, as always, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for your insight. It's been fantastic. No, thanks for having me on, mate. No problem at all. Cheers, and guys, mate. Well, and I'll, I'll have a uh, listen to your podcast. Oh, yeah. nice one, Rob. Cheers, Cheers mate. What we'll do is we'll chuck that into the description. Um, guys, make sure you hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. As you can see, Ryan's been the unlucky one that's hiding behind the like and subscribe. There's always someone <laughs> every single week. So his name is actually Ryan. But we'll put his handle in the description as well. And uh, make sure you check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well, because we are also uploading the audio versions and it's much easier to listen to than YouTube. You can obviously you know, flick around on your phone while you listen to it. But yeah, thank you very much for listening.